for solving the problems are knowledge and understanding, know the facts, but see how they fit in the big picture. Hello and welcome everyone to this new episode of Labor in Soar. My name is Bernd and for those of you who have tuned in for the first time, let me briefly tell you what our podcast is about. Labor in Soar is a science podcast, but instead of research topics, we will talk about exciting background stories from the world of science. Hello and welcome everyone also from my side. I'm Christoph. And I'm also very happy that you joined us today for another episode. Today's episode will bring together all of our three previous episodes, since we're going to talk about the past, the present, and the future of scientific publishing. And for this purpose, again, we have invited two experts. Keith Moore is the head librarian of the Royal Society. And he will talk with us about the history of scientific publishing in the first part. And then later, Stuart Taylor will join us to talk about his work as the director of publishing of the Royal Society. But before we're going to talk about this, let me give you a short update about something we talked about in the last episode, where we interviewed Alexandra Elbakian, the founder of SciHub. If you remember... Uh, we mentioned a trial in India she's facing since December last year. Now, we tried to search for some updates on that matter, um, but there is not much going on. Though last Monday, the Delhi High Court has released a document, it basically states just some procedural information. So nothing really new on that side. And the next hearing is scheduled for the 3rd of November. And now let's start today's episode. Well, Keith, you have been a librarian and archivist since the 1980s. Uh, you have worked for multiple organizations, including the Institution of Mechanical Engineers, and have been head librarian of the Royal Society since 2005. Apart from that, you have been uh, interviewed on television and appear regularly on the YouTube channel from Brady Heron Objectivity, uh, where you present interesting findings from the archives of the Royal Society. We're really happy to have you here on our podcast. It's a pleasure. You have been working now quite some time for the Royal Society. What do you say, how does it feel to hold text from giants like Charles Darwin or Isaac Newton, especially as a librarian, but also as a public figure, you are responsible for the conservation of the past, but also directly influencing the future of science. Would you say that with the great heritage and tradition also comes a great responsibility? If you put it like that, I guess so, but it's it's not why I do the job. The Royal Society's archives and heritage collections are very extensive. Uh, they have a depth of knowledge which is marvellous. If you're interested in history of science, uh, there's no better place to be. But in terms of responsibility, I'd say, look, it's just fun. Uh, this stuff is really interesting and engaging. And uh, I do look forward to coming into work. Let's now head back to talk about the history of scientific publishing. What would you say was special about the Royal Society, its journals, and how did it manage to overcome these struggles that many publishers had during those days? I think the, the key thing about the Royal Society's journals is that, um, that they've been going for a very long time, over 350 years. And you can use the journals to see changes that have happened in science. So it's a good long data set. 
when the journals began, when the philosophical transactions began, uh, it was very much a piece of private enterprise by the then secretary of the Royal Society, Henry Oldenburg, who was a, a German uh, natural philosopher based in England. Um, the Royal Society did influence the contents of the journal, but it was very much Oldenburg's uh, project and it reflected his interests and particularly his correspondence from across Europe. After Oldenburg's editorship, uh, uh, several secretaries had to try managing it. it. The philosophical transactions went through many vicissitudes. Um, uh, and it really wasn't until 1752 when the Royal Society officially took over the journal, although it had been very influential in, in its contents before that. Um, from that point onwards, the Royal Society was responsible for the finances of the journal. Previously, the secretary had, had paid for it out of his own pocket. Um, and that's when the Royal Society became exposed to the financial risks in journal publications. They did have some advantages, though, because the fellows supported it. On the whole, they were independently wealthy, uh, and therefore their membership subscriptions and donations could uh, help to finance the journals. And of course, from 1752, but even before then, their uh, scientific output uh, was given to the Royal Society for, for free, effectively. Throughout these centuries, they also managed to give it away, as you said, for free in an early form of open access, you could say. At least that's what you hear often nowadays, maybe also in a romanticized way that in the early days there was already this kind of open access. What would you say are the differences between then and now concerning the open distribution of knowledge? Well, in terms of in open distribution, it, you had to be able to buy a copy of the philosophical transactions, of course, and it, it was expensive. Therefore, it was only people who could afford it that would have a copy. Uh, however, the information from the Royal Society, about the Royal Society's activities, went out through the philosophical transactions in other ways. So copies might be circulated in, in coffee houses in London. They may end up in libraries across the world because the Royal Society would exchange journals with other institutions. So science was, was still uh, a, a project for the wealthy, but information did manage to percolate out, even into relatively popular journals. So accounts of what happened in the philosophical transactions would be uh, published in general magazines, such as the Gentleman's Magazine in the 18th and 19th centuries. Okay, thank you very much. Now we have to jump a few years. And I want to continue with this point, the financing but also maybe laid out a little bit more broad because what happened in the second half of the 20th century, and we mentioned it in the first episode of our podcast, which I can highly recommend to all of you, that many societies then assigned the commercial publishers to take over their publishing branch. However, the Royal Society did not. Could you maybe tell us what is the difference between the Royal Society and those societies, what were it financial reasons or why did the Royal Society manage to keep hold of their own publications? I, I think the Royal Society has always been associated with the philosophical transactions and therefore part of the reputation of the organization depends upon its journals. Uh, and that's certainly one good reason why the organization might want to hold on to its publishing activity. But it also has more control over, over content uh, and the way it's uh, sent out into the wider world. Increasingly, um, profitability has been an issue around journals. Uh, and of course, we know that the philosophical transaction wasn't profitable for, for most of its history. And it was routinely subsidized either by 
government uh, or by uh, external agencies such as uh, uh, the Rockefeller for chunks of its history. Uh, nowadays, uh, things are different, as uh, Stuart Taylor, our uh, director of publications, will be able to tell you. Okay, thank you. So I guess it was really mainly the will to keep the journal in their own hands. Maybe still on that topic, when you look at the other societies and at the current situation, do you think a transition back from commercial to in-house publishing is even possible and desirable for them? It might certainly be possible Certainly in the early Royal Society's history, uh, they farmed out publication and printing and then took it back in-house. So that kind of move is possible. Whether you can do it in the digital world is an, is an interesting question. Uh, and that's um, part of the future of publishing. So which, which way will scientific institutions jump? Uh, the Royal Society is not only still publishing, but we're still digitizing our back issues of philosophical trans transactions and using those as a means of promoting the society and its learning. Uh, and one could certainly see other scientific institutions taking a, a similar approach. Thank you. Now, one last very, very interesting question I have. Again, we jump a few years to the end of the 20th century, where something happened, which is called the serial crisis. And you have been in the business for long. I think you started in the 80s as a librarian. So I believe you witnessed the whole development of this process. Can you give us a brief impression how the whole process was and what exactly changed during that time? Well, I can I can only give you a librarian's perspective on, on journal publishing. And um, certainly... In terms of, of our budget, uh, journals have become increasingly more expensive. They are increasingly difficult to, to purchase in terms of the range of, of subject material that we would be interested in. And um, there's now far more ability to download individual papers rather than having full sets of journals. So we've cut back very drastically on acquiring journals for the library. Uh, we will acquire things that we think are core, but that's been shrinking over the years. Uh, and that process uh, is undoubtedly going to continue until we are really only taking uh, digital content. If you, the listener, want to dig deeper into the philosophical transactions and its publications, you can find a link in our show notes to the Royal Society's website where they have prepared the publications for their 350th anniversary. So, Keith, I imagine you have been also part of the digitalization process there. Sure. Well, we've digitized the printed version of Philosophical Transactions. Uh, we are now in the process of digitizing all the manuscripts behind those, and uh, we're developing a platform to present those uh, free of charge. So uh, that will happen, we hope, in January of next year. So there will be a massive uh, uh, set of, of original materials to look at. So if you're interested in Isaac Newton, Charles Darwin, or any of those people, you'll get to see their original handwritten materials. And uh, that should be should be really great. And if you want to know more about Keith, you can find him on his YouTube channel or on the Royal Society blog where he writes regularly. And yeah, Keith, thank you for being part of this podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for talking. Also from my behalf, it's been a great pleasure. I could see that you really have a lot of knowledge and experience about this topic. Thank you very much again and all the best. You're welcome. Let me welcome our next interview partner, Stuart Taylor. For more than 10 years, he is the publishing director for the Society's scientific journals 
and has worked as head of publishing for another five years for the Royal Society. Before he joined it, he has worked for the publisher Wiley, which overall gives him the experience of more than 30 years in the publishing business. Apart from his job at the Royal Society, he is an advocate for open science. As such, he has been board member of the Open Access Scholarly Publications Association, OASPA. Apart from his scholarly articles, he has also published articles about publication metrics, such as the impact factor. We are trying to get a glimpse on his expertise in the next hour. Welcome, Stuart. We're very happy to have you here. Hi there. It's nice to join you. Thank you very much for your welcome. One very small detail, if you don't mind. I didn't work for Wiley. I worked for Blackwell. It was before they were taken over by Wiley, but it's a small detail. Thanks for the correction. Okay. Well, let's just continue where we have left at the history part. For our listeners, you have already heard that the Royal Society founded the first journal, the Philosophical Transactions. And in 2015, it celebrated its 350th anniversary. And the celebration was done with a series of discussions about the future of scientific communication. Stuart, I believe you were one of the organizers of this event. That's correct. I was. In fact, I was probably the lead organizer, actually. But yeah. Okay. So looking back at it seven years ago, what topics would you say were emerging back then? Yeah, that's a great question, actually. I, I, I think, I mean, we discussed quite a lot of things. We did it in um, two lots of two days. Um, and we tried to identify the things that were the sort of moving edges at the time, I guess. I think the, the thing that came out very strongly to me at the time was the need for open data. Um, and as a result, we, we strengthened our open data requirements even further. So we already had open data requirements, partly due to the fact that we'd done some science policy work back in, um, oh, I think it was 2012, a, a report called Science as an Open Enterprise, which made the case for open data. But the, the future of scholarly communication project really made clear just how important that was. So we, we tightened things up a little bit more, uh, which means that um, since then, actually, all our authors have had to share all their data sets when they submit their articles to us. So we will not publish them unless they do that. The only exceptions, of course, being if the article doesn't have any data, which is fine. I think the other big um, issue which is which which was uh, which was well discussed at the time was the problems with the research assessment system that we have this is a particular pet issue of mine I guess you might say in that research assessment is done very very much based on the venue of publication um, and this causes all sorts of problems downstream yeah I saw that as I mentioned, you published about the impact factor. And yeah, this is one, also one actually very interesting topic. But maybe let me continue with this conference. If you were to host it today, which topics would you add? And which ones would you remove? Because maybe you would say, okay, they got at least partly resolved. Yeah, another great question. I mean, I think... Um... I, I think we'd probably want to revisit most of the stuff again. I guess we'd probably put the emphasis in slightly different places or we might reorganize the content a little bit. But I think that the two issues that I think have probably become larger since then are the issues of preprints, which I think have an enormous potential for the future of scholarly publishing. And I think also just the transition to open access. So, so those journals, and this is most journals, of course, which are not yet open access, are in various degrees of making the transition. And that is something which is quite difficult, actually, but needs to be done. And in fact, I set up an organization a few years ago called the Society Publishers Coalition, which is specifically to try and help learned societies make that transition. We can maybe talk about that later on, if you like. Before we jump into the open access issues, 
Maybe you can tell us first about the experience you had on the differences between commercial publishers and non-profit publishers like the Royal Society, for example. Yeah, well, in fact, the reason that I moved to the Royal Society was because I no longer wanted to serve a commercial publisher, basically. There is, a, in my view, a fairly clear conflict here with commercial publishers and what science is trying to achieve or what research is trying to achieve. One of the, I mean, commercial publishers think in a certain set of ways, which, which delivers certain behaviors, which I think are not really very helpful to science. Primarily, they think of the journal as the thing instead of the research. So they're always looking at the journal to try and make it as, um, as tasty a business prospect as they can. You know, they want to put lots and lots more articles in, they want to raise the price, they want to raise the impact factor. And also they want to launch new journals, which, really doesn't help the research enterprise at all. In fact, it's the opposite. What that does is it just further subdivides the literature into smaller and smaller pieces. And the only reason that you do that is if you're a commercial publisher, you want to grow your business. And thinking about scholarly communication as a business is fundamentally problematic, actually, and gives rise to all sorts of difficulties. But of course, if you're a commercial entity, that's how you have to think. Um, so it's you know, I, it's not really a criticism of them. I think that's just the way that commercial entities operate. I just think it's an inappropriate combination of, you know, of two of two things. So that's why I wanted to move to a non-profit publisher, because I think we, we genuinely are in a better position to be able to, to try and do what researchers want as far as possible. I mean, there are certain strictures on us, but... Um, Whenever we look at our policies or our procedures or anything like that, we try and figure out if I was a researcher, what would I want or what would I need? And then we try and provide that instead of saying, how can we make ourselves a pile more money? And, and, and you get very different answers if you look at the world those different ways. Would you also say that the business model has an influence on the quality of the articles then directly? Well, when you take a look at all the big journals are all from commercial publishers, but there have been fraudulent articles as well amongst them or, or articles where it was mainly about the impact that it had and not about the groundedness of the data. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that's sometimes true. I think that the very extreme examples of, um, of the very, very high rejection rate journals, what some people call the glamour journals, like Nature, Cell and Science, um, it has been noticed that there are higher levels of retractions in those articles. And in fact, one of your previous interviewees, Bjorn Brand, who I, I know and I enjoy reading him very much, he has pointed this out a number of times. Now, whether that's because those journals are sloppier whether it's because they'd only focused on impact or whether it's just because those articles get much more eyeballs on them i think it's it's not necessarily easy to tease out why that phenomenon happens but it does seem to be a correlation i agree but i would say those are the those are probably the exceptions i think the majority of commercially produced journals are actually doing a good job and many of them of course are owned by learned societies and are published by commercial entities Others are owned by those commercial entities. I think in the main, they, they, they do a good job quality-wise. I think where there is a real problem, actually, is in the so-called predatory open access journals, which is a real unfortunate side effect of the open access, one of the open access business models, where if you combine author charges with a publish or perish culture, you get a really terrible runaway situation where you know, rapacious people can set up a website one week and collect a bunch of money and then disappear the next week. That I think is really unfortunate because it's it, it's very easy to use that as a stick to beat open access with, which is entirely appropriate, unfortunately. But there you go. Thank you. Maybe we can continue on that topic, open access, because it's also one of our special topics and we would like to go into more detail on this. You already mentioned the predatory journals, which is actually a big problem for the whole reputation of open access. However, you mentioned Björn Brems, who was our interview partner in the second episode, and also Alexander Elbakian. Both of them were quite critical about the open access movement. And they said now 
I can quote, in 20 years, the open access movement has achieved nothing substantial. You, however, have been an activist for open access. You were board member of the OASPA. And apart from that, you are a real expert in the publishing world. So what would you say against the statements? What are the biggest achievements the open access movement actually has made? Well, I think both Björn and Alexandra would not um, say that open access is a bad thing. I think they're, they're criticizing a particular model of open access, a particular business model. So the, the pay to publish business model is certainly um, ha has some problems. There's no question about that. And I know that Björn is very concerned about a future in which all journals are paid to publish and you simply get a correlation of APCs with impact factors, which which would replace one bad system with another bad system. So I, I agree with them on that. So my enthusiasm for open access has been literally just about open access. It's not been about particularly one business model over another. The problem is if you operate subscription journals and you're trying to transition them into an open access model, you you, you still have to find some income from somewhere. And so that's how the APC model came up. But of course, it's important to point out that most open access journals don't even charge an APC. Most of them are diamond, perhaps not the biggest ones or the best known ones. But in terms of the number of journals, that's certainly true. If it were possible to secure central grant funding, for example, for these things, then, you know, that that would perhaps be the ideal solution so that it's free to authors and free to readers. And obviously, as you know, there are many, uh, many like that. The problems with the article processing charge model are, of course, that you You, you still potentially have barriers to entry instead of barriers to read, there are barriers to publish. Now, there are ways around that, of course. So, for example, our two open access journals operate a full waiver of fees for authors from the poorest nations, according to the WHO categorizations. We also offer discretionary waivers in those journals for people who aren't on those lists, but may have other problems affording open access. Currently, of course, open access is for most people a choice. It's not necessarily mandated. If they're under certain funders, of course, then they have to publish open access. But in most cases, those funders then provide some way of reimbursing the charge. So at the moment, it kind of works out because you know if you're funded by a funder requiring open access, then usually you can reclaim that charge. If you're not, then you don't have to publish open access. Now, of course, you may wish to, you may prefer to, um, in which case you then have to find some funds yourself or apply for a waiver. Okay, before we go into even more detail on the points you just made, I just want to explain a few termini for our listeners. Maybe they're not so familiar with them. I think what you just described in the beginning, uh, the model which Björn Brems and Alexandra Elbakian criticize is the so-called gold open access model, where instead of the readers, the authors have to pay for the publication and they have to pay a so-called article processing charge. And in short, this is called APC. Let's get into more details on that topic. You have two pure open access journals at the Royal Society. The biology, no, sorry, it's called Open Biology and Royal Society Open Science. And they have article processing charges of 1,800 euro and I think 1,440 euro. When you compare it to APCs by the commercial publishers, for example, Nature has APCs of $10,000. These sums seem quite small. Maybe you can help us. Is this APC enough for the journal to be sustainable? Okay, so the, the how APCs are priced is... is is uh, multifactorial. I mean, I think the example of nature is obviously very striking because it's a very high figure, but of course, nature rejects the vast majority of manuscripts they receive. So whatever publishing costs they incur have to be distributed amongst a much smaller number of published articles. And I think that's, the, well, that is the primary reason that APC is so high. Now you could argue, of course, they could only get away with that because they have a huge impact factor and nobody wants to get published in them. So I think that's also relevant. But it's not straightforward to pay for a very high rejection rate journal with an APC. You, you're always going to end up with a big number for obvious reasons. 
Now, in terms of in terms of our own uh, journal APCs, what we've tried to do is to position them at a point where they will be sustainable. Now, neither of those two open access journals currently makes money. In fact, they both lose money. So um, we're not quite in that place yet. In terms of the hybrid journals, which is the other eight, we did try and set APCs that would work in a future where they were completely flipped, right? So you obviously need to look at your cost per article and then try and figure out a level which covers those costs, but is still affordable. Now, of course, what's affordable is, you know, there is no one answer to that. It varies enormously from country to country, which is why we have to operate the waiver process. And, you know, we're trying to figure out that in a, in a fully flipped future, uh, this, sorry, flipped meaning trans, transition to open access, we will need to factor in a very significant level of waivers, actually, because we know that not all authors can afford to, uh, to pay them. So I mentioned earlier on that you you have a barrier to entry either on the reader side or the or the author side. Now the the author side barriers can be dealt with with APC waivers. Traditionally, on the subscription side, they were dealt with by free access programs, um, so such as Research for Life or Hinari or other schemes whereby poorest nations were given free access to journals. So although it's often talked about that subscription journals are you know closed, it does need to be remembered that there are measures in place for that for the poorest nations. So nothing is ever completely black and white. You know, there are always you know nuances, I guess. You as well as the Royal Society are already heading towards fully open access journals. And you have been cooperating in this matter with the Coalition S. You are taking part in their transformatory journal project. Can you maybe briefly tell us why you joined them and how it is going for you? Yeah, I mean, the, the big impetus towards open access at the moment, at the present time, came from Plan S or Coalition S, which was launched at the end, towards the end of 2018. And that was a collection of funders in Europe who had decided they were going to make a very firm open access requirement on their researchers. So they said their researchers basically can only publish in open access journals from now on, or if they are to publish in hybrid journals, those journals need to fulfill certain criteria. Initially, that was that those journals would have to be in some sort of a combined read and publish type agreement with the author's institution. Otherwise, they, they wouldn't be eligible. So what that meant for us was that we immediately faced a potential problem. So our two open access journals were fine, no restrictions on them. But the eight hybrid journals would have had to turn away any Plan S funded author, because at the time we were not in any transformative deals. We hadn't made any of these so-called read and publish deals, which I can explain later on if you like. So that meant those journals would have been ineligible. What we've done since then is we've tried to set up these sorts of deals to make sure that those journals and those institutions are, uh, are cooperating together. But Plan S in recognizing the difficulties of making these deals very quickly, they basically created a, a third route to compliance. They said, if you publicly state a few things about your journal, then we will call it a transformative journal and we will allow it to be compliant with the policy. So a transformative journal is one which has publicly stated that it will transition to an open access model when it reaches 75% open access. So in other words, when 75% of its articles are open, it must then transition to open. That's the first commitment. The second commitment is that it has to agree to certain open access growth targets year on year, and it has to meet those targets. So these are quite stringent requirements, but we, we considered that our four hybrid research journals could probably meet those requirements. And in doing so, that meant that those journals would remain in compliance with Plan S, right, by this so-called third route, if you, if you follow me. So we did that a couple of years ago. We said, okay, we publicly commit to these rules and we will publish our numbers every year to show that we're meeting them. So that's why we joined it. We wanted to make sure that we didn't have to turn away any authors from our journals. Would you say that the Coalition S was then helpful in providing you 
aid to translation or was it more like a pressure where you just felt you had to follow these steps or you would have maybe disappeared? Well, I guess you could say it's both. I mean, you know, as an open access enthusiast, I think what Plan S has done has been uh, extremely effective. It, it's, it's probably done more to advance open access publishing in the last two or three years than anything else in the history of the movement since the 1990s, right? It acted as a very big spur to publishers to get on with it and to get moving. I think before that, publishers had often tended to think, well, you know, this is somewhere off in the future, we can adapt gradually, we'll see how things go, et cetera, et cetera. What Plan S did was that it came in quite hard and quite sudden with a, with a very tough policy. So it drove progress more rapidly than otherwise. So that's obviously been perceived quite negatively in some areas, not only by publishers, but also by some academics who felt that this was too heavy handed. But equally, Plan S have been, I think, making quite a lot of effort to make sure that this is workable. So they've not simply put the hammer down and walked away. They have actually tried to work with the various partners to make sure that, you know, this is a deliverable policy. As I've said, they've made some changes to the policy to try and help with the transition, recognizing that these things cannot just be brought into effect overnight by magic. So I speak to Plan S quite, quite a lot about these things. And, and there are lots of publishers who are very keen to try and make this transition, but who nevertheless still have some problems. And I think it's important to feed those problems back to Plan S and say, look, we're genuinely trying to do this with you. You need to kind of meet us halfway, right? And, and I think Plan S has done a good job of that, really, particularly with the learned societies, which is, of course, my, uh, my sector. Very interesting indeed, because we already heard a lot of criticism about Plan S. Nevertheless, uh, we don't want to talk too much about this, actually. Just as a small teaser, uh, this is what our next episode is going to be, where we will interview the executive director of Coalition S. So maybe let's go back. One final question. When you say all of this, like... Plan S did a lot for open access and we can see open access everywhere. We can see other initiatives. I get the impression that the subscription model is outdated. Am I right? And when would you assume will be the end of the sub subscription model? <laughs> Again, I'm afraid there are some subtleties here. I mean, in broad terms, I would agree with you, yes. I think the subscription model is, is, is outdated and is probably on its way out. Having said that, it's going to be around for quite a while for certain types of journals, I think, um, or certain types of publications which may be more suitable for it. I, I, I think pure research journals, yes, I think the writing's on the wall and it's just a question of how quickly publishers can make these transitions. But if you look at the progress being made by you know, even the big four commercial publishers, they're, they're making rapid progress towards this. And, and I think they, they fully realize that the future has to be some form of an open access model. So yeah, I would agree with you. It's, it's, it's effectively outdated, but it can't be switched off overnight. So, you know, we're trying to, to, to make the transition in a sustainable way. But of course, it's not the only way of delivering open access. There are other, other things in the, in the party. Maybe I can just continue with this thought because there is another thing you mentioned and this just drives me towards my next question because this is the topic of diamond or platinum open action. You just uh, mentioned briefly for our listeners, diamond or platinum open access means that neither the author nor the reader pays for the publishing. Instead, it is financed differently. So... I assume one big issue, maybe you can outline a little bit more on that, is the financing aspect. Where does it come from? And is, is it such a tremendous problem so that this is the reason why these um, journals are still not so successful? I think the, the diamond or platinum open access model is there are a variety of ways of funding it. So in some cases, it's done at the sort of government level. So for example, in South America, there's a project called Cielo, which funds a lot of uh, a lot of open access journals. 
or it may be done on an individual basis by some form of charitable donation or grant. For example, the American Mathematical Society, um, I think at the beginning of this year, launched a, a diamond open access journal, which I think is funded by a, you know, by, by a donor. Or it may be at the level of a university. Some universities operate open access publications that they, they fund themselves. I think the problem is we've had we've had a more or less commercial model based more or less on subscriptions for quite a long time. And I think it's quite hard for people to conceptualize something which is not a business, but is more a service. You know, the, the, the whole diamond model is, is, is based on something being a service which costs money, which, if you like, is a piece of mission activity which you pay for rather than a business where you collect income and you make a surplus or a profit. Now, interestingly, in the, the Royal Society's history, we've been publishing for, I don't know, 360 years or something. And for about the first 300 of those years, we considered it exactly like this. It, we did it as a mission activity. You've probably already heard this from Keith. We didn't make any money. In fact, we lost quite substantial amounts of money. If you consider it a loss, it's probably not really correct to say loss, but so you could argue we're just trying to go back to something like that after a temporary period of a few decades where journals were thought of as businesses. But yeah, I think it's difficult to support uh, diamond journals. I think, you know, you, you've got to try and persuade somebody to give you money to do something which most other people are doing as a business. And that's slightly counterintuitive. If you go to somebody and say, look, we've got this business, we used to charge customers and produce products, but we don't want to do that anymore. We just want you to give us a big check so that we can do it for free. <laughs> just one follow-up question on this. Are there incentives at the Royal Society to change maybe only one or two journals into Diamond Open Access? Well, it, it certainly... Uh... It, there is no policy for this at the, at the present time. I think it's possible in the future that this is something we might consider. But at the moment, we've been uh, we've been having a lot of internal discussions which led up to our current decision over over many years. Um, I think going to the to Diamond would be obviously a, a still further step because our transition at the moment towards open access means that we will make a fair amount less money out of our journals. Um, if we were to go to Diamond, then obviously we would move into a negative situation. Um, and that means that it would impact on other mission activity at the Royal Society. It means that we, we wouldn't be able to spend that money on something else. But in answer to your question, no, there is no plan at the moment to make any of our journals Diamond OA. We have now already mentioned some competitive ways of communicating scientific output, like the archives, the open peer review you have only recently also launched a cooperation with ResearchGate and we have also talked with the other guests about the F1000 research platform or uh, Horizon 2020. So there are like a million different publishing platforms. What would you say will survive the selection procedure that will maybe follow in the next years? Yeah, well I mean I think um Most of this area is, is underpinned by the concept of the preprint server, right? Now, preprints um, first started to be a thing in the 90s with archive, as you mentioned. And it was at the time, it was mostly high energy physics people and some mathematicians who were using that. And they still do, but it's, it's, it's become a lot broader than that now. So archive now takes all sorts of physics and mathematics papers. And there's been in the last few years an absolute explosion of preprint servers in other areas, probably the biggest one being BioArchive for the biological sciences, MedArchive for, for medicine and so on. The F1000 model kind of uses a similar concept, but it adds a layer of post-publication peer review. So the question, I, I guess the question is primarily between the pure preprint model, which has no formalized peer review, And the F1000 type model, which has a kind of an overlay peer review on top of it. I guess, you know, if, if, we're to, if we're to think that peer review adds value, and I do believe it does add value, then you would expect the latter to be the better option. The problem, I think, though, is that the, the, the second of those two options does involve quite a big author charge. It involves $1,000 
per paper, I think, from the author. It also seems to be the case <clears throat> that it's quite hard to persuade people to peer review all the articles. So if you look on F1000 research, most articles have not got any peer reviews. So it's not really anything better than being in a preprint server to that extent. Now that may change. That may simply be a, you know, a factor of time um, because this sort of stuff is still quite unfamiliar to people. But there are people who think that the preprint server pure and simple is, is all we need because you get your stuff out there immediately within 24 hours typically. And the sort of the community peer review is arguably more valuable in any case. You know, you can think of peer review as two things. You can think of it as pre-publication done by journals, usually in secret to some extent by maybe two or three people. And then the second bit is, is the community peer review, which is done out in the open over the next you know, year or two. Now, preprints, of course, have that second thing anyway. And arguably, that's all we require. Take a look at the recent developments like the corona epidemic that uh, spread throughout the whole world. And when science becomes an issue for the everyday life of the people, they tend to just pick out the experiments that help them to continue in their worldview. So don't you think that it could be a problem for outsiders to pick out relevant research from irrelevant ones without a peer review process of some kind? I mean, I'm, I'm not really trying to do away with the peer review process. I guess I'm just trying to ask the question, what form should it take um, to be most effective? Don't forget that that echo chamber effect applies with published journals as well. I would agree with you that if you're a member of Blick coming across a preprint server and coming across a high reputation peer review journal, then the first puts you at some disadvantage because you may not be um, sufficiently up to speed with the science to know whether that preprint's any good. So you, you tend to think, well, if it's in a peer review journal, then I can probably believe it. That's probably a reasonable assumption. But of course, we do know that peer review fails. There have been some fairly spectacular cases and the, the, the MMR autism paper in The Lancet. Now, The Lancet is probably Britain's top medical journal. So, you know, what does that tell you? It tells you that the system isn't perfect. That doesn't mean that you should just remove it, though. Um, I do think peer review is, is important and it adds value. The question is whether or not it's justifiable to delay papers by six, nine, 12 months in order to do the peer review process and also the cost of the peer review process. You've got, to, you've got to be pretty sure that that journal peer review is really excellent to justify both of those things. And I would like to say that in the high reputation journals, I think it probably is, but there are certainly people who would disagree with me and think the preprint is all you need. Thank you very much. You made some very valid points and I would like to bring them all together like in a puzzle and enter the hypothetical area. We talked about preprints, release, up on submission and we talked about peer review. We mentioned open peer review. So just imagine you were a publisher entrepreneur and you could do whatever you wanted. How would you design a platform or a medium to publish scientific literature looking into the future? Well, I mean, I think many of those things are already there, but, but I think I'd probably go slightly before your question. And it's in my view, it's not really about the platform. It's about the culture of how science is done. At the beginning of the conversation, we talked about the research assessment system, which is very heavily based on venue of publication. This actually locks everything up into a, a status quo. So, you know, we've had journals for 350 years or whatever. And in the online world, we didn't actually reinvent them. We just put them online in their more or less in their current form. And the reason that we did that, I think, is that those journals are so locked into the scientific system you know, the reputational system, the, the community function of journals. You know, so far we've been talking about an article or a, a unit of research and what's good for that. But you've also got to bear in mind that journals are kind of communities. They're communities of expertise. They may be communities of a learned society or some other group. So they do have an extra function. And I think as long as 
as long as um, you know career assessment and grant awards and all these things depend on your things like your H index or how many nature papers you've got or whatever else, it kind of doesn't really matter what else we invent because nobody's going to use it, right? So I don't really see this as a technology problem at all. I don't think it's about what would be the perfect platform. I think it's it's upstream from that. It's actually how can we get researchers to stop thinking about these journals as um, as reputation vehicles? And and that is actually not a publisher problem. That's that's a science problem. You know, I think scientists have got to find some way of unlocking themselves from that particular way of thinking. And that's what's behind DORA, of course, the San Francisco Declaration on Research Assessment. It's, it's, it's trying to get people to look more broadly at how scientific achievements and, and um, you know, is recognized. If we can do that, then we free ourselves from journals and we can invent whatever new toys we like. That's that's great. But 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 we can't do it the other way around, I think. Yeah, thank you very much. I mean, these were all very valid points and this is at the basis of it, this struggle for reputation, let me call it this way. So apart from Dora, I mean, you're an expert also on this topic. Which other ways would you suggest for the assessment of science? Because it is actually difficult to assess science. Yeah, so there, there, there have been other attempts to try and tackle this problem. I mean, quite a long time ago, the National Institutes of Health in the USA produced what they call a biosketch for their biological science people applying for grants and, and so on. And, and it was an attempt to try and have a more descriptive or, or narrative type CV rather than simply a list of high impact publications. More recently, the European Commission um, under their open science policy platform produced something called the OSCAM, the Open Science Career Assessment Matrix, which was a way of trying to, to, to look at researchers and, and their behaviors and under the basis that what you reward tends to get done more often than what you don't reward. So if what you reward is publishing in high impact journals, that's what you're going to get. That's what people will prioritize. And in some cases, unfortunately, they'll even commit misconduct to get into those journals, right? We know this, the pressures are enormous. But instead, if you decide that you're going to evaluate and reward other things, then presumably those will get done more instead. Now, I guess I'm thinking here of rewarding people for you know, open data practices or for mentoring PhD students or for sharing data or code or reagents, you know, or public outreach activity. There's a whole pile of things that you do as a scientist to be a good scientific citizen, which I think we're kind of not recognizing right now. So yeah, I think that's the way forward, but, but it needs to be taken seriously. And these conversations are starting now for sure but there are still vast areas of science where it really is just about where you published your last paper. And it's very hard to unpick that sort of thinking, I think. Thank you very much. There are so many points I can agree to, especially when you said that there are other activities scientists do. For example, I was part of a hiring committee. I saw that you need more qualities as a professor, for example, than just publishing in high-ranked journals. Nevertheless, this is what is considered the very first moment. Where did he or she publish? That's right. If you're at some, you know, very high-performing research institution and you're looking for the next principal investigator to hire, you're, you're going to pick the one who's got the best publication record because that's actually what you want to get out of him or her, right? You actually want your research institute to publish a bunch of very high-impact research. So it's not surprising that that's how you then select those people. The question is whether that's that's optimal for science or whether we also need other types of people. You know, I think we're not recognizing the, the, the support staff, for example. We're not recognizing the technicians. We're not recognizing the people who aren't necessarily the hotshot PIs, but are nevertheless doing work which others can build on. I think we, we have to take a more holistic view of science than simply saying, who are the celebrities, right? Thank you very much. All of these points are worth discussing in more detail and we might follow up 
on some of these points in our next episodes. I think for today, we have already discussed a lot about open access, scientific publishing. What I definitely took away, and I mean, I knew it before, but I just want to emphasize this here again, is that it's not always easy to look at those conflicts and problems. There are often no clear answers. The problems are more subtle and there certainly is no one-size-fits-all solution. Because of this, I think it's even more important to work together, to find solutions together. For example, what you just said with the Plan S, that it was a process that they then adjusted their requirements. And talking of Plan S, I just want to tease you again. This is what our next episode will be about. I'm very happy that you joined us for this episode today. I'm very happy that you joined, Stuart. It was great talking to you. I really enjoyed it. I could have talked to you for another hour, but I think we already took a lot of your time. Thank you very much. It's my pleasure. It's great talking with you both. I think we all have learned that the science community as well as the publishers have to work together and have to change not only the publishing system, but also the uh, how we think about science communication. Absolutely right. I agree. And I wish you and the Royal Society uh, all the best for the future of the knowledge distribution. And can you maybe tell our listeners how they can follow you, uh, maybe your blog posts or something? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm not a social media guy, I'm afraid. I'm not, I'm not on Twitter. I do listen on Twitter, but I don't actually tweet. But if you, if you go to the uh, Royal Society page, you can click on journals and you can follow our publishing blog. And we, we publish very regularly on that about all kinds of things. Um, and there is also a broader Royal Society blog, which posts on uh, all sorts of other things science policy, public engagement, and so on. So yeah, please do go and follow us. For those of you who cannot do without social media, you can find the Royal Society on Twitter at RSOC Publishing. And you can also find them on Facebook when you search for the Royal Society Publishing. Of course, you can also find us on Twitter at Laborinsor and also on Reddit. If you liked this episode, do let us know. We're always happy about feedback and critical comments. If you have not yet done it, subscribe to the RSS feed and share our podcast with your friends. If you want to support us financially, you can donate to our PayPal account contact at laborinsor.de. At the end of this episode, we want to thank two people. First, Alex Matthews King from the Royal Society, who helped us organize the interview. And second, big thanks to Colby Light, who helped us with the editing of this episode. We hope that you enjoyed it and that you will tune in to the next one. But the final word today goes to Stuart. Is there one last thing you want to say, which we might have forgotten? I think actually what Bernd just said is very important, which is that the, the research community needs to have a very hard think about what it actually wants. Because, you know, publishers are there and they will build services around whatever they think they can monetize ultimately. Um, currently, I think the publishers and the researchers are locked in some kind of a dance with each other. And I don't think it's reasonable for the research community to, to just endlessly complain about publishers when they still want to dance with them, right? So I think they need to decide what they want to do and whether that involves publishers or not. That's, I guess that's my part of the work. <laughs> okay. Thanks a lot. All right. Thank you both. Good to talk to you. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.